Patricia G is a developer advocate at JetBrains. She has a history as a uh, Java engineer. Trisha, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. No, thank you for having me. Your current role is developer advocate at JetBrains. What does a developer advocate do? That is a very good question. <laughs> so, um, what what I sort of, the way I see my job is that given that I've worked for a bunch of different companies in a bunch of different environments, my job is to kind of help spread knowledge between between developers. So um, I do that by writing blog posts, by doing conference presentations and so forth, but also by still writing code as well, because, you know, you need to stay ahead of the curve in terms of technology and you need to be practicing sort of what you preach in terms of code too. So the best way for me to do that is to do some open source development as well. So this is like a constant struggle for me because I'm doing podcasting about software, but I barely have time to to write code unless I make time to write it. So right. how do you choose what kinds of code you spend your time writing when you're when the main the main aspect of your job is the communication aspect? Right. So I have a problem at the moment. Uh, well, yeah, so I have exactly the same problem, which is that spending time on code, code takes your full time attention, right? So you can't just sort of dip in and out of it. So um, I, I use there's a few different things. One, my presentations are largely live coding, which gives me a good excuse to kind of spend a couple of weeks coming up with a with a project and spending some time developing an idea. So at the start of this year, I wanted to do some Java 8 stuff. So I created um, a, a small project to um, parse like the fire hose from Twitter and display it on a JavaFX dashboard. So that way I can kind of get my coding to coincide with the stuff I want to do with an evangelism point of view. And I can also use that code in future for things like um, demonstrating stuff in screencasts and webinars and things. Um, the other thing is that if I'm trying to demonstrate something, in particular at the moment, IntelliJ Idea 15 is about to come out. So I have to demonstrate a bunch of features for, that um, that we're introducing into the into the UI. So what I need to do is find examples of code where um, a real developer might be do might be using that feature. So I'll quite often find open source projects where they're trying to do something which this feature would help. So then I might jump in and do a couple of pull requests on that open source project. But it, it's quite difficult because switching between doing the code and doing blogging and doing um, presenting or whatever, it, it's it's not an easy context switch. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. So for those who don't know, what does JetBrains make? JetBrains, um, from my point of view as a Java developer, are probably most famous for, for making IntelliJ IDEA, the Java IDE. And it's not just Java, of course. It's got, um, it supports HTML and JavaScript and a bunch of other stuff too. On top of that, there's a bunch of other um, IDEs for other languages. So uh, IDEs for Ruby and Python and PHP and so forth, all based off the IntelliJ IDEA platform. And then there's also the .NET suite of tools as well, so ReSharper and so forth. For um, ReSharper is uh, it's not an IDE in its own right. It kind of, uh, if you like, levels up Visual Studio. So I haven't done that much .NET programming, but when I did, I used ReSharper well before I joined IntelliJ, and found it really helped me because all the things I was familiar with as a Java developer, I could get those features in Visual Studio. So I think prior to working at JetBrains, most of your jobs were like a back-end Java developer uh, roles. Um, right. And so, so I'm curious, like, what are the unique challenges of building an IDE? Hmm. 
I would in comparison l- to your to your to your previous jobs. So I'd like to be able to help with that, but I don't actually work on the IDE. <laughs> so um, well, I, you. I mean, I assume you 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 help communicate between yeah. developers and 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 developers of the IDE. That's true. I mean, I think one of the things I found even before I came to JetBrains is that all software roles are not created equal. All companies that you work for, they don't have the same goals. So you can be a, a senior Java developer um, for like eight or nine different places like I was, and those companies treat you quite differently and you have different focuses. So JetBrains is a product firm, which means that we, or even if you work in an iterative fashion and you do releases like every week or every couple of weeks in terms of maybe early access products, you're still doing a, a release of the actual product about once a year, which is quite a different thing to perhaps when I was at, um, at when I was in LMAX and we were doing releases every two weeks into production for um, our, our trading platform. So you have some challenges around these kind of big peaks of these releases and coordinating everything around obviously having documentation and getting the developer community on board, like you sort of say, trying to get people on board with early access programs too so they can feedback bugs into us quite early on before we do a release. Because obviously once we've done a big release like IntelliJ 15, then we don't want to be doing like a 15.0.1 like three weeks later. <laughs> you know, we, we want it to be to be the thing that people buy and download and use for the next, you know, X many months or years. So being that you ta- spend much, much of your time talking to developers, you must uh, have conversations about Eclipse a lot. Like Eclipse is uh, another IDE that uh, you know, most actually, in fact, every every place I've been a Java developer, and that there have been several, I either use Eclipse or I use uh, IntelliJ. And I mean, I can say personally, I love IntelliJ much more than I love Eclipse. But um, I don't know. I'm curious how how you see the comparison between the two products, and and do you see different ideologies behind people who like the different IDEs? Yeah, definitely. You have different approaches. And the same with NetBeans too. Like NetBeans is great for supporting things like JavaFX because it's kind of designed to support that from the ground up. Um, Eclipse, for example, I was just having a conversation with someone who's um, in charge of doing automated testing at another organization. And he was saying that he thinks people do test-driven development more with IntelliJ IDEA than with Eclipse. Now, whether that's because the support is better in IntelliJ IDEA or if it's just the different philosophies. For example, with IntelliJ IDEA, generally speaking, you want to keep your code compiling at all times. So you use the refactoring tools for it to automatically move stuff around so you don't have errors and your code will always run. Now, the disadvantage of that is that if you have a couple of lines of code in some module somewhere that don't compile, you can't run an unrelated test because IntelliJ wants those to be compiling. Um, I mean, there's ways around that, but <clears throat> by default, the idea is to keep your project always compiling. Whereas Eclipse, because it's got this incremental compiler, has a different attitude. You can have like half your project not really compiling properly, but if the classes that your test is dependent on compile, then you can run that test and it's fine. And it doesn't matter that the rest of the code doesn't compile very well. And this kind of works very well in organizations where where I used Eclipse very early on in my career for quite a long time, actually. And there are plenty of organizations where there's, there's lots of change in the code base. And also same with um, open source projects, where maybe you can't rely on the code that you have on your desktop being 100% compiling and clean all the time. I think the aim of, of Eclipse is to kind of 
assume that and work around that. And the aim of IntelliJ is to always be moving your code towards something that works, that's that's cleaner, that you remove all of your yellow warnings and just try and sort of edge yourself up that curve. Is is like some of the people that use Eclipse, are they, uh, like is there a cadre of people who use Eclipse because it's open source? Or, Eclipse is open source, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, is there, I mean, is there a, a strong ideology behind some of those people? I think so. I mean, Eclipse is used in a bunch of different places and it's also been kind of forked and like, so for example, the Spring Source IDE is a version of Eclipse, right? Right. And um, the- I have nightmares about using that. <laughs> the um, IBM, I'm not sure if they still do, but I first started using Eclipse when it was WebSphere Studio Application Developer something something, which was the um, IBM version of Eclipse. Um, and so the fact that it is open source, A, means it's kind of open to being forked and rebranded and reused in these different ways. And B, people tend to look, especially in the Java world, I believe, for free open source solutions first and use them until they need something else. Now, IntelliJ has an open source version too. So IntelliJ Idea Community is also free and open source, but it's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind because we have a paid for ultimate platform. Mm, yeah. So there's also people that like prefer text editors. Yeah. Do you, do you understand the ideology behind that? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a Java developer, right? And one of the main complaints leveled at Java is that it's verbose and there's a lot of boilerplate. And in the past, I kind of, I, I sort of resented those accusations until I started programming in things like Groovy. And I was like, oh, I see what you mean now. So, um you know, I, I have a lot of friends in sort of Python and Ruby type communities, and I did web development years and years ago. And in those sorts of things, it's, it would be not unusual to use a, a text editor with highlighting. And, and that's kind of fine. But for me as a Java person, that just seems, you know, the the, the type safety in, in Java and the, the structure inside Java lends itself quite nicely to an IDE, which can help do autocomplete for you can kind of figure out what you want to do and even write half of your code for you if you want to i can't imagine writing java in a text editor now that just seems like a lot of work what what i what i always thought was funny is like you see web developers and they'll like write their code in uh, a text editor and then they'll be like messing around with it in the browser and they'll be like oh i don't use ides you're using developer <laughs> tools in the browser. It's basically the same thing. Why wouldn't you just have a full-fledged ID? Like, I don't want an ID. I want to work in the text editor. Um, yeah, so I mean... It really made sense to me. People get used to what they get used to, don't they? When I was doing web development years ago, this is kind of, um, yeah, a while ago, when we didn't really have a million JavaScript frameworks. You just... All you had was a couple of browsers that never freaking worked anyway, and you had to kind of hack your JavaScript pieces. Then um, a text editor was perfectly fine for that. Last year, I was playing around with some Angular because I wanted to get to understand sort of modern web development. And um, li- libraries like Angular and so forth, they're much more structured and lend themselves much more to IDEs because mm. IDEs can kind of predict what you want and they can tell you what methods are available and they can reformat things in a way which makes sense to you. So I was playing with um, Angular in, in IntelliJ IDEA and I was totally blown away by the fact that you can do all the things that I expect to do in, in Java in JavaScript. So I can extract variables, I can extract methods, I can refactor my code on the fly so that it makes much more sense to me. 
So oh, yeah. I think even in this day and age, um, obviously I work for JetBrains, but when I was playing with this, this is before I started working for JetBrains, I would say pick up an IDE for doing this stuff. It's just going to improve your productivity. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think the, the same experience can be had uh, even if you just move to, to TypeScript, um, which mm. is like a, a layer of typing on top of JavaScript. Um, and uh, it, it, t- if you look at TypeScript code, it looks like C-sharp code or, or, or Java code. And right. It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, there was a, JetBrains recently had a decision where they switched to a subscription model. And um, it was it was kind of a uh, there was there was some some pushback from developers that that didn't like this change in subscription. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure if you were a developer advocate at that point, but uh, it sounds like a point of contention that maybe uh, you know as a communicator at the company you you would have to you know serve as a, as an inner point between um, between the users and, and the company. So I'm curious what that uh, was like from your perspective. Oh, well, it was kind of horrible. <laughs> we oh. had a lot of people saying, you know, we hate JetBrains. JetBrains is only here to take so our maybe, money. So maybe you could explain explain the situation. Yeah, well, I'll do my best because the thing is that I, as you say, as part of the um, advocate team, it is part of my job to communicate with people, but I wasn't involved in the decision, so I'm not going to sure. try and like justify oh, it or anything. But um, from our point of view, we knew there was going to be some sort of pushback, but we wanted to move to something. Genuinely, I said it on the blog post, but this the blog the original blog post wasn't some sort of bluff. Um, we genuinely <laughs> heard a lot of stuff from individual developers, um, particularly people like contractors who wanted to be able to pick up the tools for a month at a time and then put them down again. And we heard stuff from startups who wanted to be able to expand the number of licenses they had sort of very easily. So we thought a monthly subscription model would really help a lot of people. Yes, it will also help us because it's it's a more predictable sort of um, income because we can see on a month by month month by month basis. Instead of at the moment, people tend to buy like the yearly license at the end of the year when we do our big releases. So yeah, obviously there are some advantages to us, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. But we did hear a lot of people saying, we would really like to be able to pay for this monthly. We pay for a lot of other stuff monthly, like Netflix or whatever. And that's kind of what we want to do. So we didn't expect quite the sort of controversy that we had. One of the main complaints was that people really had an emotional connection to owning their software instead of renting it, which I don't know. I mean, that that kind of surprised me because when I looked at the prices as an IntelliJ user, I kind of looked at that and went, oh, it's cheaper. So I was kind of happy with it. But then I upgraded every year. And a lot of people like, I don't really care about it being cheaper. I want to own it and I want to run this software for as long as I want to run it. I don't want you to take it away from me when I stop paying you. So we worked really hard to try and address those sorts of issues. So now we offer a perpetual license. If you've, for, if you've paid for like a year, you get a license for, well, not really a license, but you get that version that you started paying for um, for as long as you want to use it. Do you think software engineers have an unreasonable expectation about free software i yes i want to yes i say yes and i mean myself too (laughs) um me and my other half were both we both work in software and yet we both resent the idea of paying three pound fifty for an android app which seems insane right because 
we can afford £3.50 for an Android app. We're like, oh God, why isn't it free? That's outrageous. And so I think we kind of get used to, especially in the sort of Java and open source type world, we get used to being able to get stuff for free. And um, a lot of these people who are complaining about paying money for software are also working for companies that make money selling software. <laughs> so it's kind of, um, it's a funny situation to be in. But I think we all do it. We all kind of don't really want to spend a lot of money on on even games. You look at buying a game, you think, oh God, you know, 25 quid for a game or whatever, um, when I can download it for free if I want to. I, yeah, yeah, I think it's unrealistic. And it's also unfair. I, mean, I remember making a decision some time ago, once I got, got myself on a salary, which was comfortable for me, to no longer pirate stuff because other people who do my job are making money by by me paying for the things that I want to to own, whether it's music or videos or or software. I think it's only fair to pay for the things that you use a lot of. Yeah, it's an interesting inflection point in in maturity. I can I can kind of relate to that. You know, like even though I still well, I shouldn't say I know people who use <laughs> popcorn time um, or you know uTorrent sometimes. I, I uh, those people have. Uh, you know, begun to use, um, you know, services like, you know, like paying for a movie on YouTube or, uh, you know, buying an album on iTunes and stuff like that. Um, whereas, you know, in the past, those people would have, um, you know, pirated without, without batting an eye. Right. Um, anyway, let's, let's talk some about Java. I mean, you've been a Java engineer for over a decade. Um, how has Java changed since you first started working with it? It's well, it's much much bigger for a start. Um, I got I was taught Java at university, so I got the classic sort of university Java education, and really they just teach you the syntax and the if then. That else. makes two of us, right? And I, I think I've spoken to a lot of people, actually, especially developers who no longer do Java, who who learnt Java at university, and they're like, well, we were taught some syntax, and we thought it was kind of boilerplate heavy, and you know, <laughs> and, and it's kind of clunky. Um, but over time, we've got all sorts of frameworks obviously you can be using uh, java enterprise edition or you can be using spring or you can be using um drop wizard to create something which has got microservices or or whatever i mean there's so much out there in the ecosystem that merely knowing the syntax is actually not super useful you need to know the the whole ecosystem what are what are the current trends you need to understand how to pick the right sorts of libraries um so there's all of the, the sort of open source ecosystem, but from a language point of view, it's definitely matured and, and learnt a lot from other places. So Java kind of started from a C and C++ point of view. They kind of, the, the philosophy was very much, let's look at C and C++, take what we like, um, try and hide away things that we don't like. So for example, by having things like garbage collection and by not being able to manipulate pointers and make a language that is simple for developers to use. And over time, that philosophy still, although we change fairly slowly in the Java world compared to a lot of a lot of other languages, we still adopt things which other people are finding useful in other languages. People have gotten a little more demanding in their expectations for simplicity. Right, exactly. And I think that we're much more polyglot as programmers than, than perhaps we were certainly maybe 10 years ago. So I've been using Groovy a lot for the last couple of years. And I look at Groovy and think, well, yeah, why not have um, closures? Why not have a, a, a really nice, succinct syntax for creating maps and arrays? Why not have some of these features that, as a pure Java developer, I didn't really know what I was missing? 
And we as developers feed that into the Java community. And because um, Java is uh, written as a, an open source project as well with the OpenJDK, because there's the Standards Council with the JCP, we actually as a community can feed stuff back to the back to the guys in charge of Java and say, actually, I think you should introduce Lambda expressions. I think you need to be able to do something so that we can do easy map reduce over our collections and things like that. And Java yes. 8 is by far the biggest change, obviously, with, with Lambda expressions and streams. But over time, generally, it's improved in terms of reducing the amount of boilerplate and things like the diamond operator means you don't have to type things twice and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so so we'll get into Java eight eventually. But I mean, you mentioned Groovy. Uh, have, have you have you messed around with both Groovy and Scala? No, I um, <laughs> I've managed to avoid Scala so far. <laughs> okay. But, uh, Why was that a very intentional um, choice? It was kind of accidental, actually. I mean, a lot of people in the sorts of the communities I go and speak to, there's lots of people very keen on Java on Scala. Lots of people using it for things like microservices uh, and using it in a kind of blended JVM polyglot environment. So maybe they've got a Scala service over here and a Java service over here. Um, every time I've sort of thought, oh, I'm probably going to have to learn Scala at this point, someone else in the te- in my team has t- stepped up and taken on that responsibility. But it looks like um, given that I'm kind of one of the couple of Java and JVM evangelists at JetBrains, and we get a lot of questions around the Scala support, it looks like probably one of us is going to have to pick up Scala at some point soon, and it might be me. (laughs) Why why have so many languages been built on the JVM? I think that's one of the great things about the JVM. It's the, the, the strength of Java in terms of things like the garbage collection and things like optimization on the fly, um, that's all in the JVM. It's not, it's not necessarily a feature of, of Java the language. So you can build JRuby, you can build Groovy, you can build Kotlin, which is JetBrains um, JVM language, on top of the JVM. So you don't have to reinvent the whole wheel. You get your cross-platform thing straight away. So you can run it on your whatever boxes you've got lying around in your company, when I worked at Ford Motor Company, we had Sunboxes and Microsoft Boxes and whatever, and we moved to Java because it was a lot easier for us to actually just deploy it, literally do the right ones, deploy anywhere thing. And the JVM, you can kind of write whatever syntax you want for your language on top of the JVM and still take advantage of all the hard work that's gone into the 20 years that of the JVM platform. And there's a lot of languages being built on JavaScript lately. Does it remind you of what's happened with the JVM? Um. I, I'm going to try hard not to get sneery about JavaScript. I feel a bit sorry for JavaScript, actually, because people like me were using it like 10, 15 years ago thinking, oh, no, this is kind of nasty. And it has definitely improved a lot. Um, I don't know if it's the same sort of thing that's happening in the JVM, because I think the the JavaScript ecosystem seems to be much more... Well, there's even more open source. There are even more libraries, even more, I think, um, self-starting type projects. And it's not like there is a, a Sun or an Oracle behind it kind of pushing it. So it feels like a bit more a bit more fragmented than the Java ecosystem. Um, but that could be an advantage for them too because they're not being pulled in one corporate direction. They can kind of just respond to whatever works in the market. But I also really like JavaScript because it's very, very flexible, and that's where the power comes from. So even running on the server side, when I was at, at MongoDB, the, the MongoDB shell was written in JavaScript. So you can kind of create your little JavaScript scripts to do whatever you want to the MongoDB server. And that was quite nice. It was very powerful. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and the 
the openness versus uh, versus having a, a centralized uh, point of, of control, like with Oracle working on Java uh, in a more concerted fashion. It's, it's an interesting contrast I hadn't, I hadn't thought of. Um, so uh, before we get to Java 8, like, are there any more historical points that you think of along Java's history that, that are interesting to you? Um, I mean, I can think of, I've just been doing a lot of, sort of retrospective stuff around Java because, you know, 20 years of Java and I've been coding in it for nearly all of that time, which is kind of alarming. Um, I think for me personally, the big milestones were Java 5, where we got generics and that's over 10 years ago now, which is quite alarming. And, um, and the Oracle, the Oracle purchase of, of Sun, which was very alarming because we, as Java developers, didn't really know where Oracle were going to take this technology and what they were going to do with it. And in the meantime as well, don't forget that Sun had been promising Java 7 for, I don't know, four or five years, and it still hadn't come out yet. And um, it was quite a, uh, it was definitely a turning point in, in Java's history. And the fact that Oracle came along didn't just kind of, you know, just let Java poodle along, but nurtured it, committed to releases every two years, um, tried to make the the process more open source, which let's remember Oracle is, is not one of their natural sweet spots. Um, they're trying to make it more open source, trying to make it more um, so that the community gets involved, trying to make the whole process more transparent. Um, Oracle has been a surprising uh, positive force for Java, I think. Okay, so Java 8. I mean, you gave a talk called Java 8 in Anger, and uh, I know there was some misinterpretation around that title, but what did you actually mean by that title? And what was that talk about? Right. So Java 8 and Anger, I did try and think of a different title, but basically means Java 8 in practice or in real life. And um, I, I thought it was a Britishism. So I checked with a couple of American friends and said, do you understand what I mean by in anger? And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I forgot those guys watch loads of British telly. So um, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't a good example. So yeah, so Java 8 in anger. Uh, the idea really was... Um, last year I went to a lot of Java 8 was released what early last year so I went to a lot of conferences where we had talks where it said look this is what a lambda looks like this is what a stream looks like this is new date time API and you think okay that's nice Um, what I need to know is how am I going to use that as a developer how is it going to feel to work with it so what I wanted to do this year was pull together a talk where developers could look at what I was doing. So again, a live coding type thing and see what it really meant to be thinking in terms of lambdas, to be thinking in terms of the stream operations that are available to you. And also to be aware of some of the new um, methods on the collections API, which aren't part of streams that can do things for you in one line of code that previously took you six or seven. So it's one thing to kind of show an example of this is the computive absent method. And it's another to say, look, this is the problem you're trying to solve. This is the kind of user story, if you like. How do I get from my blank page, my empty class, to using some of these new features to deliver um, real functionality for a real application? What's an example of that? What is an example of like widespread usage uh, that people should be using or can take advantage of in Java 8? Um, I think, I think, well, there's a couple of things. 
One, using streams on collections, um, anywhere where you were previously doing a for loop, you should be looking to see if there's streams, some stream operations on collections, which will simplify that. Now, this is going to take a bit of getting used to because especially if we've been doing just Java and we haven't been using other languages, this idea of doing um, collection.filter.map.reduce is not intuitive to us, but it can reduce some of our big for loops from sort of, you know, 10, 15 lines of code down to two or three that are much more descriptive of what they do. So that's mm. kind of the core behind streams. It also has the ability to go parallel, which is kind of widely touted as the reason for streams but i feel like parallel is a is a dangerous magic incantation that people won't test properly and if you don't test it you'll find that parallel will go slower under under many circumstances so why is that oh because if you split up data into multiple streams so parallel will automatically try and make use of as many cores as are available to it so on my laptop i've got four cores it will probably split it into four threads and then try and do the the operation that you're trying to do so let's say we're filtering for coffee shops called starbucks it will do that over over four threads over four cores so theoretically if you have a very big data set and you're trying to do a complex operation it will finish faster because you're splitting it into four different operations but if for example you're trying to find the first instance in a in a collection of starbucks the coffee shop then doing the work of spawning off four different threads, splitting the collection into four different pieces, doing the work over four different threads, and then bringing it all back together again is almost definitely going to be slower than just iterating through until you come across the first instance of that Starbucks coffee shop. So yeah. it's very dependent on, on what you're trying to do, what your data looks like, and what your hardware looks like. Right, okay. So, so what else? What else were you talking about in, in the Java 8 and Angular discussion? There's, um, there's, as well as streams, there's actually new methods directly on collections, which um, is a kind of subtlety which I missed when I, was, when I was hearing about new features. So Map, in particular, has some nice new methods to allow you to, um, traditionally, we would do something like check the map to see if this key exists. If it doesn't exist, create a new instance of the value, put that in the map, and then do something with it. Um, but there's a method called compute if absent, which would just do most of that for you now with one line of code. So that's really nice. So a lot of these common things that we do kind of again and again that usually use ifs or loops can be kind of made simpler with these new methods or with streams. Um, the other thing that I don't get much of a chance to look into in the Java 8 and Anger talk is the new date and time API. And this is really nice because <laughs> as Java developers, we've been struggling with java.util.date for like 20 years, trying to figure oh, yeah. out why... Oh, my God. Right. I'm trying to figure out why half of the methods, the ones that look useful, are deprecated. Why, I, why does... Um, I can't remember which way around it is, but month and day, one, has, one starts at zero and one starts at one. Uh, and that's just... It's, it's just crazy, just trying to get your head around it. So 20 years later, we finally get a date and time API that, that actually works for us. And it's very modern. It uses like um, a DSL-style, um, immutable, builder-style way of, of working. And, and that's really nice. So I think that's something that and in the London Java community, which I'm still kind of vaguely a part of, we were um, very involved with running hack days to kind of figure out if that API was going to work and, and writing test cases for it and so forth. So this is kind of a, a, was a big deal for the London Java community. And it's important for us to make sure that the developers know there's this new date and time API and it will make your life a lot easier. 
What's coming in Java 9? Well, the, the big ticket item is uh, Jigsaw. So Jigsaw is a modularization thing. And I think, I keep looking at it, I dive in and out of it, so I'm not super involved, but I think the majority of developers, it probably won't impact them, but um, it allows you to, to modularize your code. So instead of just being packages and classes, you can say, I guess a lot of us are doing this with, with projects inside our IDEs or whatever. Anything which you'd build as a separate jar is now going to potentially be a, a module. So we'll have like real modularization. Um, it does impact us as developers in that it impacts library code quite a lot because library code modularization required, it was supposed to come in Java 7, so it's, it's been a long time coming. It, it required a lot of untangling of the, of the Java code. So it's been a lot of refactoring under the covers. And some of that refactoring will impact developers who relied on various classes and packages um, as they kind of, some of them are, are now no longer public because they were never meant to be public. Uh, so that's kind of, that's the big thing that's coming in Java 9. I suspect that for most everyday developers, it's really not going to impact them that much. But for the ecosystem as a whole, it's a big change. So anyone who's working on open source projects, anyone who's working on library code should be testing against OpenJDK version 9 right now because they might find that it doesn't work the way they expect it to. Hmm. So speaking of the Java ecosystem as a whole, do you think Java is declining in popularity? Well, obviously, I'm going to say no. <laughs> um, but no, I don't think it is. And one of the things that... So I guess it depends on whether you mean Java the language or... But we were talking about Java the ecosystem. Java well, the okay. Here, here, I mean, here's a more sensible question, I think. Um, so I think the the world of software engineering is is uh, is growing quickly. Um, right. uh, maybe, maybe you disagree with that, but I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's growing quickly. It should quickly. be, right? <laughs> yeah. And the number of new Java projects, I think, relative to new Rails or, uh, I don't know, some kind of all JavaScript framework... Um, uh, projects. I mean, there are fewer Java projects than these than these other frameworks. Um, so I think w what I'm getting at is like a relative decline rather than an absolute decline. I yeah, I think I'd still disagree. <laughs> really? Okay. I think that um, I think Java and even the other JVM languages are probably not the first choice for a startup. I agree. I think there's a lot of stuff happening um, in in JavaScript frameworks, a lot of stuff happening with Node, for example. And as you say, like a few years ago, everyone was doing everything in Ruby. They still do, but, you know, these things come and go. But I think that... I think we don't hear about exciting new startup Silicon Valley stuff in Java, but I think that most organizations, Java has always been a bit of a blue-collar blue language. It was designed that way. So <laughs> you're, looking at the, you're looking at the banks, the insurance companies, you're looking at um, manufacturing companies. In fact, most of the places have worked Do you mean, do you mean white collar or is that... No, it says, it says blue collar. It says it on the, um, uh, uh, one of the James Gosling things. So it's basically just supposed to be like a an everyday nine-to-five type language. Wow. So the guy swinging a pickaxe on, right. the, on the railroad the track. The coal face of the, of the coding, <laughs> you know, not the exciting <laughs> Silicon Valley stuff, just the nine-to-five, keep the business running. Um, oh, that is funny. And I reckon the, the number of projects, Java projects, 
and JVM projects in those sorts of environments is certainly not not declining, not even a relative way. Um, I think that they are in a, in a lucky position because a lot of those big organizations, they're quite happy running um, JVMs all over the place. And they'll even take the step of, of maybe running some applications or some services in Scala or another JVM language because at least they're fairly comfortable with the JVM. Whereas I think a lot of the, the, the systems and architects guys in those organizations would be very uncomfortable to let JavaScript crawl all over their servers. For, you know, rightly or wrongly. Java is something they've been doing for 20 years. They're kind of comfortable with it. So definitely in those organizations, Java will continue to be extremely successful. But the one area where I think Java is really exploding is Android and IoT. Oh, yeah. So we often forget about Android because of the tension between Google and Oracle. You're kind of either an Android person or a Java person. And I'm kind of a Java person. But um, I happen to work very closely with someone who's more of an Android person. I see the Android community now from sort of a different point of view. And the Android community is enormous. It's also a place where people go to learn how to program. People don't come to Java to learn how to program. They will look at Python or something like that. <laughs> but they will write a little app on the Android phone. And they'll be learning Java to write that app. And I think that we as Java community should do a lot more to embrace the Android community because there are developers there who are making the same mistakes we've always made. They're not writing automated tests. They're not doing separation of concerns. They're not, um, you know, they, they don't have that software engineering background. They're tending to sort of start out like, like let's hack together an app, and they're learning as they go. And we should. Well, really so I mean, I, I would take issue with that because I don't see that as necessarily like an anti-pattern. And just like speak, speaking personally, like. I mean, Java was the language I started with, and I've written the most code in Java, but like I've fallen out of favor with it. And I think probably a lot of it is due to what you described as this blue collar thing. Like I, I associate Java with all these terrible corporate jobs that I've had, right? Um, which is not necessarily fair upon the language. But something that is true about these corporate jobs is they instill this idea that, oh, you have to do, uh, you know, test, to tester and development, you have to do uh, you know, in intensely separated concerns. Um, you have to spec out your code more than than you're actually writing code. Whereas when I'm when I'm working on a project like I did, you know, Android is a perfect example. I, I did a project in Android. Separation of concerns was horrible. There was no tests, but I loved it. I loved the, I loved building the project. And I think I've I've done this. It, the development tends to feel more like that in when I'm doing web applications as well. Um, and I mean, maybe this is a maybe this is a um, an unfair uh, line that I'm blurring this uh, association between Java and this uh, I don't know what I see as this hierarchical corporate notion of of doing test driven development and and uh, and aggressive separation of concerns as as you said, but um, but I don't know that's 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 something I see, and I think um, you know it's 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 I don't I don't I don't see it necessarily as fair to um, to to uh, cr you know, criticize the Android community maybe for for making these types of mistakes that we categorize as amateurish. Sure, I, I guess I I guess what I meant more was that because Android has a lot of of fresh new blood, which is fantastic, and it, it encourages a lot of people who ha who don't necessarily have a programming background to pick up programming, which we should be totally on board with, and and also Android seems to be quite focused on getting 
code out the door, which again is not necessarily a bad thing. But there are definitely things that if if the blue collar Java community and the Android community could communicate a bit better, we could learn off each other. So um, yeah. I guess from my point of view, I, I look at the Android community and think, well, you could really do with thinking about some design patterns there. You could do with having some tests. That would be great. Um, and and I'm sure that, that, that the Android community looks at us and goes, well, yeah, but you don't deliver anything because you're too busy, as you say, <laughs> like writing documentation and, and going through gateway reviews. Um, and definitely the, the focus on delivery and quick releases, regular releases to the Play Store updates um, naturally instead of having to stop the world and redeploy the whole application. These are fantastic things about Android that we could be learning from and using in the in the Java community too. So I'd really like to see the two communities working much closer together. In fact, I don't even want to think about the fact that the Android community and the Java community are different. They shouldn't be because you're writing the same language. But this is kind of, I think, part of the, the tension between, uh, partly a result of the tension between Oracle and Google, and partly because they're two totally different things, really. Writing smaller applications for um, for devices with limited resources is a totally different set of skills than writing, whether it's a big monolith or whether it's a modern microservices application, but something which is doing, you know, some mega uh, application for some bank. It's a, it's a totally different sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. It's probably the Capulets and Montagues kind of thing. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a bit about the application of Java in, in your experience. Um, you, you worked at the LMAX exchange. Can you tell me about, tell me, tell me about your work there. What is the LMAX exchange and what kind of stuff were you doing? So it's a financial exchange based in London. Um, the idea really was to, it originally started as the idea of being able to do peer to peer, um, foreign exchange and, uh, financial transactions. So, the idea maybe might be that I have, I don't know, a hundred euros and you have a uh, hundred dollars and we will create a marketplace so that we can exchange that as fairly as possible. Um, that was the original idea behind um, LMAX Exchange. It turned out that actually because it was a very transparent exchange, because it was meant to be very quick operation to begin with, and because we also wanted to make sure that there was plenty of money on the exchange. We went out to a bunch of banks and brokers and so forth and ended up being a platform for a bunch of different types of organizations, including banks and hedge funds and so forth, to, to exchange money and, and to uh, to provide a foreign exchange platform. Um, also, you can also still put money on there as an individual too. So why. Why was Java a good fit? Why is Java a good fit for finance? So this is interesting. This is kind of, I guess, one of the most frequently asked questions. You're doing something which is low latency, which has to be very high speed. And you pick something like Java, which traditionally, even us Java programmers tend to think of as being a bit slow and clunky. Um, There are a number of reasons to pick Java. One is that there are a lot of Java programmers out there. So it's, it's much easier to hire for them than to hire for sort of even C++ programmers, certainly in London. Um, the second is that the JVM is very, very clever optimization. So you can, if you write clean code, some of the stuff we were talking about, separation of concerns, um, clean code, small methods, uh, keep the code uh, in a nice domain-driven design type way, 
um, Hotspot can apt- optimize a lot of that stuff very, very easily. So you get very good performance without having to write complicated code. In fact, you write clearer, simpler code, and you get good performance out of that. So those were kind of the two main reasons, really, to, to go with Java. We even wrote the front end in Java using um, GWT. But that um, by the time I left, that kind of was migrating more towards uh, a jQuery, HTML, and, and JavaScript-type way of doing stuff, because that was just much better performance. Yeah, so I, I worked at a um, at a trading place briefly, and I don't, I don't know exactly, it probably is somewhat different than working in Exchange, but it's still the same environment, you know, still the same constraints you have to work at the pace of the marketplace, sort right. of um, the pace of the exchanges, the pace of the different high-frequency trading firms and stuff. So you've got to be fast in certain places. But um, you know, in, in some sense, you can you can sort of figure out the places where you really need to be fast, and you right. can. And, and since you're building a service-oriented architecture, you can just give those responsibilities to C and then you have some sort of uh, layer layer of interoperability between the different. Um, the different components is that was that your experience as well no i mean we did we did everything in java we did everything in java including wow. the the execution venue which was the the core bit the matching engine um and our our latencies were end to end so from a, a request coming in over the network to going back over the network um event or eventually got down to sub millisecond so and that's going through all the services so it was quite fast enough it was actually faster than than a lot of the banks could put their prices into our exchange so wow we but we also used we had help from um uh 29 west they wrote uh a very fast messaging system now that was under the covers i think that was c plus plus with a java api over the top of it but we were kind of feeding stuff back to them about how to how to get the most out of their java side of stuff for that um but for us the fact that our UI was actually in Java is is indicative of our attitude of we really didn't want the context switching. We really wanted people to be writing Java all the time without thinking, oh, well, this is the course, this is C++. Oh, yeah. This oh, is yeah. the UI, so we're going to do this in JavaScript. Um, you know, these are the tests, so we're going to do them in, in Groovy. Um, in fact, they did. They were the first people to introduce me to Spock for testing, which I love. But they've migrated back from Spock for testing back towards Java for testing because it just keeps your context just much more, uh, much more in your head. It's much more, um, much less cognitive overhead to to kind of switch between between the different tasks. My boss from there as well. He also said that you can write high performance, high performing Java in a shorter amount of time than you can write high-performing C++, eventually oh, yeah. you will write C++ that will outperform the Java, but it will take more time to write that code. And it'll take more time to recruit the developer who's capable of writing it. Right, exactly. That's interesting. So, I mean, more broadly speaking, um, this Flash Boys stuff and this, uh, you know, all this hullabaloo about... Um, you know, what's going on at the intersection of trading and programming. Um, has high-frequency trading ruined the public markets? <laughs> I'm not sure. When I first started working for financial markets, so I, I worked for a financial markets consultancy just before I worked for LMAX. I was being trained up on all of the, the high-frequency trading and all of the way it worked. And I was like, this this surely this can't be good, right? You have all these computers <laughs> telling the market what to do, responding to other computers, doing stuff in the market, and um, 
And then you end up with all sorts of, you know, runaway trading situations and whatever. And it all felt a little bit like a house of cards. Um, oh my gosh, yes. So I, I don't really know. <laughs> I, think- I mean, that's how I felt when I like, I mean, that's, so that's also like the interesting thing about working in finance. Like I think the trade-offs is like, in finance, you don't really, like what I didn't like about it is I didn't feel like I was building a product. I felt like I was just building a way to, to like, you know, juice the margins and stuff. Right. But like, but what's interesting is like the day to day, like you are in, you are, a, a, you hit, the news hits you when you're working at a, at a trading place or an exchange, I imagine like, you know, when the NASDAQ freezes and you're like, oh my God, the the economy just froze because right. of a computer glitch. Right. Like, a, like a, you're involved in it and it's interesting because you have to respond to it. But B, like you said, you get a front row seat to like, oh my God, this feels like a house of cards. Yeah. And I was working in finance when um, when the crunch happened in 2008 and Lehman's went under and I had friends who were working at Lehman's and stuff. And I remember thinking that's kind of what I – that's kind of what I feared, that people were rebundling and reselling financial instruments and not really understanding what was what was happening under the covers. One of the things I did like about LMAX is that from, from our point of view, as we were an exchange, we – um, we were very transparent and we could say, look, we have X many orders at this price, X many orders at that price. Um, and from our point of view, uh, you can see everything that's going on. Nothing is kind of, there's no like a dark liquidity or any of this sort of thing. It's completely open. But then on the other hand, you don't really know if one of your trading partners is just going to go bankrupt overnight because they didn't do the right amounts of risk analysis over their own stuff. Yeah, well, and and I mean, the thing is, what's interesting about the 2008 stuff is like, that was stuff that people were able to decipher, because I think because it was on the uh, above the level of abstraction of like, just pure technology, right? Like it was actual financial abstractions. Right, there there were houses there involved and and assets. Yeah, so it makes you wonder, like, uh, how much scamming is going on at the like brutal technological level? I, yeah, I mean, I don't really know. Like, like you're saying, a lot of the stuff around trading is around trying to find well, it's trying to find opportunities for arbitrage. But even things like, like you say, just just moving your server closer to someone else's server so that you can take <laughs> the prices sooner than someone else takes them. Um, and and that's kind of, I mean, that's not that's certainly not cheating by any means. But like you say, where is the Where's the solid thing underneath? Yeah, yeah. What are you really doing? What are you achieving? Well, you you moved your server a bit closer, so you have a few less nanoseconds to get a price. And all you're doing is is making money for someone else. Listen, Tricia, we are increasing liquidity. We are making markets more efficient. (laughs) This is the product that we are adding to to the economy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I really enjoyed working for LMAX. It was fun technically, um, and it was really interesting because you need to understand the laws of physics, for example, like how fast can you get a message across the, the Atlantic and and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's not quite the same as – I mean, even at JetBrains, it's not like I'm enormously alt- altruistic. My job here is to help developers get better at what they do and to help them use the tools that they use every day. So in my, in my, in my mind, I'm kind of helping people's lives get a tiny bit better and and I didn't really feel like that's what you do when you work for a financial company. <laughs> well, so let's talk a little bit more about that developer advocacy, that teaching developers, relating to developers. Um, I mean, I kind I have somewhat of a similar passion. I'm, you know, I podcast about software. It's very niche. It's 
uh, a communicative role. Um, it's certainly not entirely altruistic because it's. Uh, <laughs> I find it's a career I, I can do. Um, but, you know, how did you find this career route and how are you enjoying it relative to your past roles? I, I'm not really sure how I've how I ended up in this role. I mean, I've written a bunch of blog posts about how I ended up here, but I I just knew that this is what I wanted to do. And I think that things I've been, decisions I've been taking in previous roles have steered me in this direction. So for example, back when I worked for Detica, this is the, the company where I was doing, um, I was doing consulting for financial markets. This is back in like 2007. I would see people who work for my company presenting at conferences and writing blogs. And I was like, oh, that sounds like kind of fun. But like those guys really know what they're talking about. So what what do I have to contribute? So I kind of spent a bit of time then trying to figure out what what my strengths and weaknesses were and what maybe I might be able to write about or uh, what maybe I needed to learn a lot more about. And then... Later on, when I worked for LMAX and they were open sourcing the Disruptor, which was their very cool technology to, to pass data around very quickly, this was a good good chance for me to get involved in the open source community, to help them write the white paper, to um, start presenting on this. And that's where I really found what my, my sweet spot is, which is taking complicated stuff that took me ages to understand and trying to translate that into something that that everyday developers can understand. Because I remember some people sort of saying, especially, you know what finance is like, where people are kind of, let's say, well, yeah, let's say snobby about, you know, only really smart people can understand these sorts of things. <laughs> I didn't believe that. I believe that average developers can understand this stuff if you put it in, in the right way, if you put the right pictures up there, if you talk them through it. Just because they haven't done it before doesn't mean they're stupid. So yeah. I really I really enjoyed the challenge of taking complicated things that apparently only really smart people should understand and explaining them to everybody. And that's when I decided I really wanted to do something more um, advocacy evangelism-ish. But I think part of it is because my parents are teachers. So I think underneath it all, I just want to be a well-paid teacher. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. I mean, okay, so so to begin to close off, um, I mean, we, we did... On Software Engineering Daily, we did a week of shows about women in tech. And this is like a super tricky issue to uh, to deal with, especially if you're a podcast run by males <laughs> in tech. Um, but I'm glad we talked about it. I don't think we did it perfectly, but I'm still it's sort of like an ongoing um, thing I'm trying to figure out how to tease apart and how to discuss. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, some many of the, the women in tech, they don't want to talk about women in tech. They want to talk about technology because right. that's how, I think that's how the narrative shifts from like, I mean, because there's, there's a number of women who uh, who have been vocal about the issue and then they only get contacted for interviews about women in tech. Right, so it, it not about their actual like, job, right? So Exactly. And then it just kind of defeats the purpose because, you know, people whose opinions, people whose, whose opinions need to change, the, the stubborn you know, uh, overly, you know, uh, men, meninists people, these, you know, they'll only hear like, oh, these women are just talking about women in tech. They never talk about their technology. And that's just because the reporters are contacting them to talk about women in tech. So is this kind of chicken and egg problem? But so, so I say all that to ask you, like, how should I approach this issue? And, you know, as somebody who is, who has been, who is getting involved in technological evangelism of another sort, how can I do this kind of technological evangelism? Right. So I think that's a really excellent question. And I, I have to say as well that um, 
when I first kind of came onto the scene, if you like, when I first started writing blogs and became available to speak at conferences, anytime I got interviewed, I always got asked about the women in tech thing. And um, and when I first started blogging as well, I tried to do it anonymously because I didn't really want to to be uh, blatantly female because A, I don't want to talk about being a woman in technology or I didn't. And B, I don't want people to judge me first by my gender and then look at my code and figure out whether it's any good or not. So I actually had to work quite hard very early on to not get pulled into that trap, like you say, about talking about women in tech all the time. So I try and balance it because it's important to talk about. It's important. I feel like it's an important topic that we need to have multiple views on and we should be open about it. But like you say, I don't want to be someone who you just call up to interview about about <laughs> women in tech, right? So there's two things. One, as as a woman in tech, it's down to me to very carefully control, if it's important to me, um, to very carefully control my image and what um, what I get known for. And one of the reasons why I do live demos is because I wanted people to see me as a developer first. I wanted to, them to see me coding live to see that I'm a, a woman developer, not just I didn't just get picked for this conference because I'm a woman and I can I string two words together. So that was a very deliberate choice on my part. By the way, live demos are insanely difficult, very oh, yeah. nerve-wracking, and not necessarily the best choice for, for certainly for beginner speakers. But, um, but it, it's a good way to showcase the fact that you're really technical. But from your point of view or from the point of view of someone approaching a, a woman either to interview them or to get them to write an article or to get them to go to a conference, um, one of the things that really puts me off is when people say, hi, Trisha, I don't have enough women on my show. Can I, can you come and talk to me? <laughs> and I'm like, I, you know, um, I'm not surprised you're in IT. There aren't many women, but I would like you to talk to me about the things that I'm passionate about. And if you want to ask me about women in tech, that's fine because it's, like I say, it's an important topic. It's an obvious topic because, you know, I'm a woman in technology. Um, so as someone trying to open up these sorts of conversations or at least showcase diversity the important thing is to to go first and foremost for what that person is is good at and then you know ask them questions around if if they want to ask them questions around you know were there any barriers you know how did they get there or do they not want to talk about it that kind of thing I don't know if that really answers your question (laughs) no 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 I think that that answers my question uh, exactly and hopefully uh, it'll make it clear from the way that I structure this interview that that was my intention. Right. Great. Well, um, well, Trisha G, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. It's been fantastic talking to you. It was my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs>